Grace and peace, beloved friends, and welcome to another episode of Your Week with St. Luke's, our weekly podcast that begins the weekly rhythm of learn, live, love, and lead. And we hope and pray that this will be an enriching time for you, a time of learning and preparing you to then live out these scriptures and love God more fully through them and that you might lead your life because of them. And so we continue in our series called Relive, where we are examining the resurrection accounts that are contained in the Gospels and how they speak into our lives lived, into the stewardship of our lives how the resurrection of Jesus speaks into our legacy that we leave. So we started with Luke's resurrection account uh, a few weeks ago, and then last week we looked at Matthew's account. And today we are looking at John's resurrection account. Now, a little side note, since we examined and preached Mark's resurrection account at Easter this past spring, John will be our last of this series. Now, John, as you may recall, is called the fourth gospel because it is seen outside of or separate from the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who are seen, optic, uh, together, sin, synoptic. John is quite different, and it's been fun seeing similarities of the synoptic gospels with John in these resurrection accounts. Now, John's resurrection account takes up two chapters, chapter 20 and chapter 21. It takes up a total of 56 verses. Uh, We're going to focus on uh, chapter 20 for our time together here. Um, And so as we break it down, chapter 20, uh, verse 1 through 10, gives us the, the empty tomb. Verse 11 through 18, we have Jesus' appearance to Mary of Magdalene. Verses 19 through 23, we have Jesus' appearance to the disciples. Then finally, in verse 24 through 31, we have Jesus' appearance to Thomas and the disciples. And what will be the longest portion of our discussion today? However, I do need to mention chapter 21 of John, which contains really two important appearances. Uh, The first, Jesus appears... Uh, to a handful of disciples in Cana of Galilee at the Sea of Tiberias, and he has a very powerful and transformative conversation with Peter. And then soon after that conversation, Jesus has a conversation about and with the disciple whom Jesus loved. And we learn that that disciple is the author of John. So let's get back to chapter 20 uh, and read verse 1 through 10. Early in the morning, on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. She ran to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord from the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. Peter and the other disciple left to go to the tomb. They were running together, but the other disciple ran faster than Peter and was first to arrive at the tomb. Bending down uh, to take a look, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Following him, Simon Peter entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. He also saw the face cloth 
that had been on Jesus' head. It wasn't with the other cloths, but was folded up in its own place. Then the other disciple, the one who arrived at the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They didn't yet understand the scripture that Jesus must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. So a number of observations we can make uh, and not enough time to, to do them here. But a few of them in this section would be in comparison to observations that we've made about Luke and Matthew's account in, in this series of podcasts. Luke has two unnamed women And Matthew has two Marys, Mary of Magdalene and the other Mary, which, if you recall from last week, is believed to be Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mark also has Mary Magdalene and the mother of James and Salome. John here only has one Mary, and it's Mary of Magdalene. Now, let's stop and talk about this figure who's been really important throughout uh, this series, Dr. Gail O'Day, one of my New Testament professors and a Johannan scholar who we lost a few years ago to cancer, states that it is important to distinguish the gospel portrait of Mary Magdalene from the traditions that have developed about her in the patristic and medieval periods. Dr. O'Day points out that there is no biblical foundation for the popular portrait of her as a sinful woman or a prostitute. Instead, she says, as verse 19 will show, Mary Magdalene is the first disciple to proclaim the good news of Easter, the resurrection story. You know, it seems like the early church and the traditions that the four gospels come from greatly value Mary Magdalene's place in the community and in this story. It is only later that she is relegated and diminished. I wonder what important role people have played in our lives that oftentimes are relegated and diminished. Well, back to our text. Upon discovery of the tomb being open, Mary seems to run back to tell the disciples, and she encounters Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, the disciple who Jesus loved is throughout John's gospel, and as I mentioned before, we find out at the end that it is most likely the author of this gospel. Mary, in her report to Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved, uses the first person plural pronoun, we, when she says, we don't know where they've put him. Now, this doesn't necessarily imply that other women were with her. They just weren't named. It could be that she is speaking for all of Jesus' disciples, implying an indefinite they, possibly lumping us all in with the we, lumping us into this narrative, into this story. Another observation is that in this section, we have the second pairing of Peter and the disciple that Jesus loved. It seems that Peter, throughout John, the Gospel of John, has has functioned as the representative of Jesus' disciples. 
throughout the gospel, representing the, the full range of discipleship. He has embodied all of that confession of faith, misunderstanding and misplaced enthusiasm and denial, the full range of discipleship. And the disciple whom Jesus loved seems to be singularly identified with the events of Jesus. He's always identified by his relationship to Jesus and never by his name. So while Peter has many roles in the Gospel of John, the disciple, the beloved disciple, has only one role, to embody the love and intimacy with Jesus. That is the goal of discipleship in John's gospel. It seems that the beloved disciple is also faster than Peter. He arrives at the tomb before Peter. And the beloved disciple seems to hesitate. He doesn't enter the tomb. But Peter, who, whose actions consistently in John's gospel are characterized by an excess of enthusiasm, rushes right on in. Now, many biblical scholars have been fascinated by the details here. Some commentators interpret the notion that the beloved disciple outran Peter to the tomb is evidence that the beloved disciple was younger than Peter. It's a bit ageist, but we'll go with that. But uh, Rudolf Boltman takes that a little further, and he suggests that Peter represented Jewish Christianity, and that the beloved disciple represented Gentile Christianity. So that in these verses, one sees that the first community of believers arised out of the Jewish community, and that the Gentile Christians attain, uh, come to their faith only after them. Well, let's continue on with uh, John chapter 20, verse 11 through 18. Mary stood outside near the tomb crying. As she cried, she bent down to look into the tomb. She saw two angels dressed in white, seated where the body of Jesus had been, one at the head and one at the foot. The angels asked her, Woman, why are you crying? She replied, They have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they put him. As soon as she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she replied, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher or rabbi. Jesus said to her, Don't hold on to me, for I haven't yet gone up to my father. Go to my brothers and sisters and tell them, I'm going up to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene left and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord. Then she told them what he said to her. Again, way too many observations for the time we have here. A few of them that we can make about this account is how, again, it differs from the accounts of the synoptic gospels. 
First, John is the only gospel in which Mary weeps at the tomb. John is calling back to what Jesus said in verse chapter 16, verse 20, where he says, Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn, but the world will rejoice. And therefore, he's setting the stage for the fulfillment of Jesus' promise. So you will have pain now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take joy from you. You see, John's resurrection account is the narrative fulfillment of many, if not all, of Jesus' promises in earlier chapters here in John's gospel. And we're going to see that a number of times as we continue on. Another observation we can make is the angels. We have two, and they're inside the tomb. Whereas in Matthew, we have one, and it's sitting on top of the tomb. And these angels really don't make an Easter announcement. They do draw attention to Mary's grief. But the announcement and significance of the resurrection belongs to Jesus and Jesus alone and not some intermediary messenger. So this function of the angels here is, is not as a messenger of resurrection, but as a comforting presence to a grieving Mary, to a grieving disciple. Lastly, John alone among the Gospels locates the angels as sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head another at the feet. This could mean many of things, but most scholars uh, agree that it, from the beginning to the end, he is gone. He is not there. So let's pick back up with verse 19 through 23. It was still the first day of the week. That evening, while the disciples were behind closed doors because they were afraid of the Jewish authorities, Jesus came and stood among them. He said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. When the disciples saw the Lord, they were filled with joy. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive someone's sins, they are forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they aren't forgiven. We have now this appearance of the risen Lord to the disciples and the commissioning of the disciples by the risen Lord. Many elements uh, related to Luke and Matthew's accounts. And this section has a lot in common with Luke's account we learned about two weeks ago. It occurs on Sunday evening, and Jesus meets the disciples using the same words that Luke has. And in both, Jesus displays his wounds of his crucifixion to the gathered disciples. An interesting note is that John never identified this group as the eleven, as the other Gospels do. Now, some commentators, noticing this detail, believe that this gathering of disciples represents the faith community in general, and not only the apostle leadership. That, that Jesus comes to us all, and not 
just a few. The locked doors seem to heighten uh, the, the drama and the supernatural effect of Jesus' entrance into the room. Jesus greets with, peace be with you. And this is not uh, only a uh, common greeting, as we've talked about in weeks prior, but it has an additional function. With these words, Jesus fulfills another of his promises from his farewell discourse that's found in John chapter 14. You see, there he promises the gift of his peace. And this peace is given to a community who will experience the world's hatred and persecution, the community in John. This gift that Jesus gives, the gift of peace, is to these disciples who have locked themselves away out of fear. It's an explicit reminder to the reading community that they need not face hardship anxiously, but to do so with the peace of Jesus. Jesus presents his wounds. And in Luke, the motivation for this presentation is explicitly stated. From two weeks ago, we learned that it's because they think that Jesus is a ghost. They're afraid and they think he's a ghost, so he shows them. But there's no explicit motivation for Jesus' actions here in John. However, since it's not until after Jesus shows the disciples his hands inside that they rejoice. The disciples' joy, like Mary's when she's weeping, has come, when she weeps in verse 16, is the fulfillment of Jesus' promise. The disciples' pain will turn to joy when they see him again. Jesus goes to his disciples uh, a number of times in Things just in Luke, just like as Jesus in Luke uh, is eating, John here has Jesus then breathe on his disciples, invoking not only that he is alive, but also calling back to God being the breath of life. First found in Genesis chapter 2, then in Exodus chapter 3, where the name of God is breathed on Moses. And then even again in Ezekiel 39, chapter 37, verse 9. Jesus breathing on his disciples the Holy Spirit. This is representing a new creation. The image of new life provides an important link with Jesus' announcement that those who believe in Jesus receive new life as children of God. And the Holy Spirit is the breath that sustains that new life. Now we turn our attention to our primary text for this week. Verse 24 through 31. Thomas, the one called Didymus, one of the twelve, wasn't with the disciples when Jesus came. The other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he replied, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my finger in the wounds left by the nails and put my hand into his side, I won't believe. After eight days, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. 
Even though the doors were locked, Jesus entered and stood among them. He said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put your hand into my side. No more disbelief. Believe. Thomas responded to Jesus, My Lord and my God. And Jesus replied, Do you believe because you have you see me? Happy are those who don't see and yet believe. Then Jesus did many other miracles, miraculous signs in his disciples' presence, signs that aren't recorded in this scroll, but these things are written down so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, God's Son, and that believing, you will have life in his name. Okay, so the disciples announced to Thomas in verse 25 the exact same announcement that Mary Magdalene made to them in verse 18. Seems that Thomas will not believe their announcement, but it is important to note that the disciples did not seem to believe Mary's earlier announcement either. It's only when Jesus appeared to his to the disciples in verse 19 and showed them his hands and his side in verse 20 that they finally recognized the Lord and rejoiced. So Thomas rejecting the, this verbal witness to the resurrection by the disciples is no different than the disciples' rejection of the verbal witness by Mary. Thomas demands, his demands are, are worded pretty graphically, and the demand for concrete evidence seems to be heightened by his insistence on touching Jesus Jesus' hands and side. But in essence, what he demands as the conditions for his belief, this tangible proof of the resurrection, is what Jesus himself gave the disciples in verse 20. It seems that Thomas, is his demands set the stage for Jesus' reappearance. The description of the gathering ends... Uh, with Jesus' entrance in verse 26, it mirrors what happens in verse 19, with, with two exceptions. The, the first, there is no expression of fear. Now, this may suggest that through the gift of the Holy Spirit, fear is now removed. The other is Thomas' presence is explicitly noted, reinforcing that Thomas will now receive what he missed in the earlier appearance. In verse 27, Jesus offers to give Thomas exactly what he demanded. His words, Jesus' words, parallel those of Thomas' demands in verse 25. Now, another thing to note, that the word doubt is sadly eternally linked with Thomas, right? Doubting Thomas. It's, it's linked in popular interpretation of this story. The word occurs nowhere in verse 24 through 29, even though many of our translators may have it there. A literal translation of verse 27b reads, Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Apistos, unbelieving, and pistos, 
believing. Jesus encourages Thomas to move from a position of unbelief to a position of belief. You see, the story does not focus on doubt and skepticism. It focuses on the grounds of faith. That Jesus will meet the conditions that Thomas set for his belief. It seems Jesus explicitly identifies his role of himself as the motivation for Thomas's move from unbelief to belief. You see, the story is a beautiful story of Jesus offering himself to Thomas. And in doing so, invoking the most powerful and complete confession of faith in Jesus when Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Confessing Jesus as his Lord and God, Thomas is acknowledging the truth of the words that Jesus spoke to him in chapter 14, verse 7. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This language, Thomas's confession, also affirms the central truth that the gospel begins with in chapter 1, verse 1. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Thomas sees God fully revealed in Jesus. This is a, a man who quickly makes such a profound confession of faith that has echoed throughout the centuries. It's not touching Jesus that leads Thomas to his confession of faith. It's Jesus' gracious offer of himself to Thomas that brings Thomas to belief. A few of the notes here. Jesus is not attempting to shame Thomas, but he's giving Thomas what he needs for faith as he has done so many times in John's gospel. The last observation we can make for our time here is uh, in Jesus' words in chapter 20, verse 29, they contain a, a related promise that belief will not be limited to those who see what Thomas has seen or what the disciples have seen. Jesus does not disparage the faith of the first disciples, which is grounded in sight. Verse 29 seems to be intended to reassure a future generations or future generations of believers that haven't seen Jesus, that haven't been the first generation of witness. It's not a prerequisite of faith. The joy of the first disciples at the sight of the risen Lord is explicitly stated in verse 20. The blessing is, in verse 29, this joy includes future generations. That we have that joy of the resurrected living God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I look forward to hearing about powerful discussions about John's resurrection story and I pray that this week will be a blessing to you and that you will be a blessing to others. That the life you lead will be a resurrection life. 
that you will, as Pastor Jen said this weekend, write your eulogy and how you live your life. Grace and peace. <laughs>